Hi, thank you for joining us once again here at the world's best capitalized bank headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. It's my honor and privilege to be here live in the uh, New York studio with uh, Salida. We're once again talking about what's going on in markets with the crack CIO team. Uh, and look, it's been a volatile period. We have uh, central banks driving policy and markets. We have geopolitical concerns. We have inflation and concerns that inflation will mutate into recession. And uh, with all this ongoing, it will be good to talk through what our team is looking at as the most important drivers impacting your wealth today. And uh, to start with, I want to turn to Salida. And Salida, what do you think are the most important things we need to share with investors today? Thank you, Mark. Great to have you here in person. So I think, you know, what's really top of mind is how do we balance the short-term risks with long-term opportunities? That's really key uh, because you don't want the answer to be just waiting. Um, look, we have seen a pretty strong rally in the market over the last month and a half, up until this week. Now we're in the red again. Um, and still then, we see the, a very challenging environment in the near term because uh, we don't think either the Fed or the market has pivoted just, just yet. Um, so, you know, you could characterize this maybe a bear market, really. We'll see. But it, it doesn't seem like it's going to have um, that much of a leg in the near term. So even though near term, we see downside risks and they're elevated, history shows us that waiting on the sidelines um, actually has very little benefit. Um, you know, we think you should have a liquidity strategy that helps to um, you know, accommodate spending needs for the next three to five years. Of that, maybe you know, a year's worth or six months worth of it could be in pure cash. But other than that, holding cash and waiting uh, for the market to come your way has significant opportunity costs. In fact, based on our, based on our analysis, uh, we know that it's only rational to wait for another 10% downside if you are more than 80% sure that it's going to happen because otherwise you're going to get back into the market most likely too late. And in the meantime, the purchasing power of your cash is going to be er eroding. So instead, um, what we suggest is to focus on, uh, on the long term where the outlook actually has become much more attractive. Um, if you look at actually for my first slide here, um, you know, equity valuations have corrected significantly in the last year. At these levels, it's reasonable to expect about a high single digit returns annually uh, for, the next, for the next decade. Meanwhile, bond yields in the last couple of days, they have come down, but still it is it's quite high levels compared to where we have been since the global financial crisis. And in this chart here, what I show is starting point of bond yields have been a good uh, predictor of uh, strong fixed income returns. And then finally, on alternatives, we... Um, you know, we know that well, valuation markdowns are likely to come uh, for existing private equity uh, vintages in the near term, but also um, we know that those vintages that are launched one year after the peak or after a public market sell-off actually has uh, provided investors a good opportunity to you know, come into the market and has provided superior returns compared to private vintages. So I think the most important thing is that we need to put things in 
perspective. Um, in the near term, we're cognizant of the risks uh, and the volatility ahead for the market. However, for most, you know, more patient investors, um, I think it's really a good time to put cash to work in the market, especially in a diversified portfolio that can help mitigate near-term downside to a certain extent, but also positions you really well for long-term success. Well, that uh, makes a lot of sense, and we all need a reminder uh, sometimes that you know over the longer term, market timing takes a lot of energy, a lot of heartache, and this many statistics and studies have shown that ultimately most investors just don't benefit from trying to pull that off. Yeah. Now, that said, we've got to talk about some of the near-term events. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve, 75 basis point move. Markets seem relieved by that, although uh, you know a lack of forward guidance doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be some big moves ahead. So walk us through that a little sure. bit. So that 75 uh, last week was the second 75 uh, in a row. And markets actually really, because I think market expected this, but you're right, we are, I think, at a very um, important point now in Fed's uh, hiking cycle. And I put this here on this slide as well. You can see it, you know, with the latest hike, uh, the federal funds rate is now at 225 to 2.5% range, which is uh, what the Fed guides as, as their neutral policy, the rate at which it's neither helping the economy nor hurting the economy. But from here onward, Every basis point is going to take us further and further into that restrictive territory. So in other words, right now comes really the hard part. So I would say with inflation being really quite high and the labor market being quite tight, uh, we don't think a pause or a pivot in policy is happening anytime soon. Um, the market is pricing about 100 basis points between now and the year end. And we have another seven weeks until the next Fed meeting. In the meantime, we're going to have two CPI readings. We're going to have two more employment uh, jobs reports. And depending on how the data comes in, um, you know, Fed could decide to do a maybe 50 basis points hike in this September, another 25 in the next one, and another 25 to make it that 100. And this would take us to a Fed fund rate of three, three and a quarter to three and a half percent range, which is restrictive. But in our opinion, not restrictive enough that a recession is, is inevitable. Of course, you know, the key variable here is inflation. Uh, Long-term inflation expectations, as we all have watched, have come down, which is what Fed wants. And you know, we expect the spot inflation will likely cool off between now and the year end as well. And if all goes, you know, according to plan, uh, then Fed doesn't necessarily need to do that much more in 2020. So probably that will be the end of their hiking cycle. But if, if it's proven wrong, then the Fed, I think, will have no choice but to keep the, um, its foot on, on the gas pedal going into next year. And I think that is really the major risk uh, for the markets. In terms of what it means for the economy, um, at this point, I mean, you know, we believe a soft landing versus a slump is really a toss-up. All right. Well, as complex as the picture is in the United States, it may be even more complex in Europe, where the ECB is also raising rates. Uh, for this, we're going to turn to Dean. And, you know, I guess the basic question is, Dean, when 
we have these uh, higher uh, rates in Europe. In the past, on occasion, it has turned into an existential crisis for the Eurozone. So what is going on in Europe that uh, we, we get the rate hikes and we start to deal with the inflation in Europe, uh, but that the ECB believes that this doesn't turn into another Eurozone crisis? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, well, there's a lot in that question. Um, you know, what can we say about the ECB's recent move? Look, the, the 50 basis point uh, increase did come as a surprise to, uh, to to the markets. The principal reason for that was that the ECB had guided us all to expecting a 25 basis point hike. Now, a 50 basis point hike on its own, it wasn't arguably was not the wrong move for them to make. Uh, the reason uh, for that is that you know, just like we're seeing elsewhere in the world, uh, inflation. Uh, in the eurozone is high, but you know one of the things that uh, happened at that meeting as well, which we must uh, address, is the announcement of a new policy tool from the um, European Central Bank, and that's the TPI, the Transmission Protection Instrument. Now, you know markets have high expectations for this, um, for exactly for the reasons you said that you know in previous uh, previous cycles, every time the ECB has hiked rates, it's led to some kind of uh, existential crisis, or let's be honest, a bond a, a bond market. Market fracture of some description. Now, you know, what were investors looking for when it comes to the TPI? Well, in my view, they were looking for a tool that was unlimited in size, uh, one that had very low conditionality. So, you know, countries wouldn't have to adopt some kind of strict austerity program in order to qualify for it. Um, and also, they wanted to see that the ECB had autonomy over the decision making of when to implement this tool. And, you know, on those three metrics alone, I think the ECB ticked all the boxes. And indeed, the market reaction we saw on the day of the announcement would suggest that's the case because, you know, uh, Italian spreads in particular held steady and they're pretty much where they are to, um, where they are at the meeting, standing around 225 basis points above uh, above German 10-year yields. Now, you know, what does this TPI allow the ECB to do? It allows the ECB to join the party, essentially, of tightening interest rates. The ECB has been late to this cycle. Uh, um, it is playing catch up. And, you know, what the TPI should allow the ECB to do is start is to embark on that process without without seeing significantly, um, significantly higher uh, bond yields, especially in the periphery. Now, it is worth saying that, you know, it's unlikely that the TPI on its own will be enough to um, um, prevent uh, spreads rising further from here. But what they what it will do is it will put a cap on where they go. Now, we don't know where that cap is. Nobody does, and we won't find out until the market tests that. Um, but ultimately, um, the, the kind of fractures that we've seen in previous crises should be prevented with this tool. So, you know, what's next from the ECB? Well, you know, as the next chart shows, and I've already mentioned, inflation is high in the eurozone. It's running at around 8.9 percent, as at the latest uh, the, the latest print we have. That's the highest that we've seen in the lifetime of the single currency. Um, you know, what's going on in the inflation numbers is broad as we would expect. A lot of the inflation um, um, surprise is being driven by, uh, by energy, and that's the kind of black component you can see on this, uh, the black bar, sorry, you can see on this chart here. But what the ECB are going to be more focused on is what's happening elsewhere in that basket. So as you can see on this chart here, you know, food prices are increasing, and also, you know, for services as well, we're starting to see that service and inflation is, is starting to creep up. So I would expect that over the next few months, we see further moves from the ECB 
see. Um, probably it's quite likely we get another 50 basis point hike when they meet in September um, and another 25 when they meet in October and probably 25 again when we meet in December. Um, and that should get rates up to around 1% in the Eurozone. Now, a lot lower than what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, but 1% for the Eurozone economy is actually is actually getting towards uh, get getting towards the neutral rates now. You know what comes next. I think it would depends what happens to the economy. Much like every other central bank, one of the key things that happened at the last ECB meeting was that forward guidance was essentially abandoned. So they will be data dependent. If the economy avoids a recession next year, they could go further. If not, then it's probably quite likely that they stay on hold at that kind of one percent level. Okay, so uh, the ECB is trying to tighten to deal with inflation, but as you pointed out, a lot of the inflation is tied to what's going on with energy. And, uh, you know, Russia ha- uh, unfortunately has uh, created policies like cutting gas supplies that are certainly influencing where energy prices go in Europe. What is the response in Europe and how is that going to play out? Uh, Because as we all know, this is the time when Europe builds the uh, gas reserves to make it through the winter. Absolutely, and uh, you know th- these summer months are really key in terms of stocking up uh, stocking up gas reserves. And as you can see on this chart here, you know the, the reserves are around sixty five percent of uh, capacity. Now the EU has set itself a target that it wants to get to eighty percent uh, uh, capacity. Um, and, sorry, reserves full full up to around eighty percent by the first of November of this year. Germany's actually set the bar higher for itself. It's looking to get those levels up to around. 90%. Now, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the current interruptions to gas supplies so far has not interrupted that rebuilding of gas stocks, even when Nord Stream 1 flows were cut to around 40% of capacity prior to the shutdown. We saw that, uh, that, that storage did actually increase. It increased by around 10% uh, in the last month. But clearly what we've seen since the since Nord Stream 1 pipeline has reopened and, capa- and flows through the pipeline have been cut further, they're running at around 20% capacity. That potentially creates a headwind. Now, Now, you know, why does this matter? Well, you know, clearly um, Europe is very, well, in particular, Germany is very dependent on uh, on Russia for its uh, energy supplies. If it look if it looks like we're getting to a situation where gas reserves cannot be topped up to a sufficient level ahead of the winter, then there is a real risk that we could start to see um, uh, a policy response from uh, from governments in Europe that would lead to a um, uh, kind of restricting or even rationing of gas supplies to industry and even potentially how. Households and the economic impact from that would be quite uh, would, would be quite meaningful. Now, you know, what what is Europe doing in the meantime? Look, it isn't just focused on building gas reserves. There's been a lot of policy announcements in terms of trying to reduce uh, gas consumption. Uh, the EU's come forward with a plan to reduce gas consumption by 15% um, across across the block. Now, look, there's been a lot of debate. Is everyone going to agree to that? Maybe, maybe not. But you know, as long as the overwhelming majority 
authority or at least targeting that, that's going to go a long way to helping uh, to, 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 to helping Europe reach its uh, reach its goal of avoiding rationing. Now, you know what happens if that is an unavoidable case and, and rationing does have to uh, happen. Well, I would expect that that's going to hit production um, in particular quite hard uh, in the eurozone. Um, what I'm what I'm showing you on this chart is our forecast for the uh, eurozone economy under our baseline assumption. As you can see, we got growth of just shy of 3% this year, falling to just over 1% next year. That's assuming that we don't see any rationing or, 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 or significant pass-through of gas prices into the Eurozone economy. If we get the situation where the current level of supplies uh, disruptions continue, then it's quite likely that some kind of rationing or even price impact will be felt in the Eurozone economy. In my mind, that would be a, quite a big hit to growth this year. It probably means that growth falls closer to 2%. We get a couple of negative quarters of, uh, of growth, i.e. a recession in the Eurozone. And that would, that would translate into a kind of flattish growth next year. We've got minus 0.3 you know, in our forecast, but you know, that's essentially flat growth next year. There is a third scenario that we do have to consider. We still don't think it's likely, but you know, we do have to consider the possibility that Russia was, were to cut gas supplies completely, i.e. to zero, uh, to the Eurozone. If that were to be the case, then it would be a much more difficult few months ahead, and consequently, the economic impact would be much more significant. Therefore, you know, under that scenario, I, I could see growth falling to as low as 1.1% this year, a, a deeper recession, and you know, that would obviously be felt in next year with perhaps growth falling to um, uh, as, as, as low as 2%. Now, you know, these are scenarios, um, and and you know I, I wouldn't take these numbers as as, as a accurate forecast by any stretch of the imagination. But you know it's uh, the, the key thing to bear in mind here is we've got to watch over the coming months how Europe responds to 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 gas supply disruptions and, and to what extent those disruptions continue. I think the final thing I just just want to say on this as well is that you know there's a lot of talk everywhere at the moment about recession risks. You know growth slowdown. Look, growth is Flowing everywhere, we know that because that, that's that's a consequence of supply chain disruptions, as a consequence of higher energy prices than we were forecasting at the start of this year. But Europe really is at the eye of the storm here, and you know, I, I, I'd be I'd, in terms of recession risk. I think that probably the risks for, of of a recession are tilted a little bit higher towards the eurozone than perhaps they are in other parts of the world, such as the US, which are not as dependent on uh, on on on, on supply of gas coming from Russia as, uh, as, as, as the Eurozone is. All right, Dean, we're going to leave uh, Europe there, and we're also going to leave uh, those tuned in on LinkedIn right here, and we wish you a great uh, rest of the day. And now we're going to turn uh, to our more investment-centric part of this. Uh, okay, so uh, the first question is going to be to Salida, and we are coming through earnings season where are the opportunities arising for investors as we look at this earnings period? Yeah. So, look, I think when we look at this earnings period, if we have to characterize it with one sentence, with one phrase, it would be better than feared. Um, but, you know, you can see here in my slide, I think, you know, the analysts are still cutting their estimates and we see more cuts ahead because right now the consensus is still above where our forecast is. Um, but given the rally that we have seen, um, I think it's really clear that the market has been uh, 
brace or expecting a much more disappointing outlook than we've gotten so far. So right now, uh, when we look at S&P, I think it's, you know, is in the right sort of the fair value range uh, for a soft landing scenario. So it's really hard to see much upside from here for the index as a whole, especially when the uh, profits are, are growth slowing down. I think investors will really need to be selective um, and going forward, it's, it's, it makes much more sense to, sense to focus on those companies that benefit from more persistent demand drivers. So for example, to guard against an economic downturn, you would want to buy defensives like uh, healthcare, which tends to be less correlated with economic cycle and should also benefit from the aging population. It's trend it's not reversing anytime soon, and also um, and also innovation, health tech in particularly, um, also high quality companies that can better manage some of the uh, economic headwinds and generate more consistent cash flow will also help limit the downside. So those are uh, two sort of the characterizations, I would say. But we also advocate still uh, a value bias over growth. The growth expectations for value companies have been holding up a lot better than those for growth companies. And we expect this to continue, especially if we do see a, a soft landing. And of course, we still favor energy stocks. Um, the energy sector has been carrying uh, the rest of S&P on its back during this earnings season. Uh, I think the incredible tight energy market uh, we have right now has been on, you know, on full display as we get earnings from each company. Uh, we know that energy has already outperformed. So that's the biggest question. It already did what it's supposed to do. Do you really like them still? And, and the answer is yes, because you can see this in this next slide here. Supply-demand uh, dynamics still are very supportive going forward, especially given the underinvestment and oil and gas exploration over the last uh, eight years. So value, energy, defenses like healthcare, and uh, still expectation of a um, cutting of estimates by analysts for the whole index. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I think we were not as pessimistic as some on this earnings period, in part because the inflation that people are worried about you know, is also inflating uh, earnings as well. And so that's helped the year-over-year comparisons. Um, well, all right, thank you, Salita. Now, Mark, uh, we're going to turn to Mark. Mark, we've got about six minutes left. But Salita talked at the top of the hour how we're not just seeing opportunities now that we have better valuations in equities. We're also seeing uh, better yields, and we also see uh, opportunity in newer vintages in private equity. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, Mark. So first of all, I'd say that fixed income has become a bit more investable than what we've been getting used to over the last couple of years. So really in the last two or three years, I'd say we've more or less had kind of a higher rated bonds on at least preferred in terms of asset class preferences. It's been the financing source. It's been limited diversification, very low expected return. But that has really changed over the last six to nine months. So when we look here at the yield, it's been in the range around two and a half to three and a half percent over the last three, four months, which is an indication that the, the expected return over the next five, 10 years is certainly a lot better than what it used to be. But secondly, and I think equally important, Mark, is that we're now getting some diversification back from these bonds, which essentially had very little room for yields to move down, prices to move higher. But what we're seeing in, in some of the scenario analysis we've done, we say basically in our base case of a soft landing, we'd expect that we'd get to around 325 on the US 10-year. That means the prices could come down a little bit, but we see almost an equal uh, 
probability of getting into a slump scenario where we think that uh, longer yields would move down, say, more closer to, say, a 1.5% with significant upside and potentially shielding equity markets from uh, some of the risk we're seeing from that negative earnings picture that Toledo was uh, was mentioning before. Question, of course, being where would we take some of those opportunities or where would we add a bit to portfolios within fixed income? And on the following slide, what we see is that uh, there's definitely different types of yields on offer here in US dollars, depending on how much risk you're willing to take. So in kind of in the higher rated segment, be it around government bonds, investment grade, we're somewhere in this two and a half to four percent range, high grade bonds, which is kind of a broader terminology for higher rated bonds, maybe closer to 3% is where we'd probably be putting our chips at the moment. We do think that when we look at high yield emerging market, this is something that, again, selectively starts to become quite interesting here, yields of around 8% so far, little in terms of defaults, but what we would expect into more uh, of a slowing growth environment where defaults are picking up, we see it, banks are starting to tighten lending standards. That's a time when defaults starting to increase and where still yields and, and the underlying spreads could still move, move out a bit. So here we're basically saying values back in, in bonds, we tilt towards the higher rated segment here. That's the bonds. This- what about private? Yeah, so on the second part of the question market, where do we get kind of the diversification and say, you know, we've talked a lot about commodities on these type of calls. So we're still in there saying that alternatives, be it on the commodity side, but also with hedge fund is definitely where kind of we complement uh, our well-diversified portfolios. And it's really been what's kind of holding many portfolios up. But the one thing that I definitely want to stress is when it comes to private market allocations. And here, uh, the private equity part is something that is uh, particularly uh, uh, in focus. And, and one of the real reasons why this is so interesting, and it just feels like the, the time is just right for many of our clients to now finally look into private equity and lift some of those allocation upwards is first and foremost, many of our clients, they just have enough wealth that they're thinking not in just in their own dimensions, their own kind of lifetime, but into that multi-generational investment period where it doesn't really matter so much if you're locking up uh, money for a period of time to reap some of those high expected returns in private equity. They, they certainly offer over the the listed markets. But this very, very interesting statistics that we have is basically suggesting that when you're investing a year after the market has peaked, so basically when valuation is a bit down, there's distress in parts of the market and some things are really on a good offer, that's when we get the very best deals. So basically here, in terms of the highest IRR, so this internal rate of return on private equity vintages is really just right now. So there's really kind of a a, a strong call for action here to to many of our, our clients. And, and partners to basically say, this is really now the time that you want to start lifting some of those private market and private equity allocations. And with that, Mark, I think we're just uh, in time here. Back to you. Well, you, you did a great job and uh, no good deed goes unpunished. We have time, I think, for a quick question because I think it's a good one. Uh, and I'm going to turn it to you, Mark. You know, why not add U.S. high yield because the yields are better there as well? Uh, so it, it is, and we certainly have a fixed allocation to, to U.S. high yield in our portfolios. It's done relatively well. So far, spreads came out a bit, so so certainly prices uh, down a bit. But to the point before, I think we are just about to see a period where defaults are going to rise. It would be very, very weird if we now 
very likely in a in a technical recession in the US at the moment. That's obviously debatable, will be debated for the next year or so. But I think there is certainly a risk that we're currently in a recession. Uh, again, as I said before, banks are less willing to, to lend. That means that defaults are going to move higher. And it puts a little bit of stress into that high yield market where also liquidity can be a bit of an issue if we get a bit of stress in the market. So hold your horses by adding extra allocation to high yield. Uh, and we'll certainly be allocating uh, more if we either get spreads out or a little bit more certainty around a slump scenario being a, a less probable event than it is right now, Mark. Yeah, we've, uh, we've run that play on high yield waiting long enough and then getting into high yield after the big move. We've run that together many times over the years, Mark, and, and I, I think that's well said. Well, look, we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us. I think the main message today is the near term is uncertain. It hinges on policy that, uh, you know, by leaders around the world, it could get worse before it gets better. But if you take that step back and you look at what's already happened in these markets, there is some reason to have confidence that investments made today will pay off uh, with better portfolio returns in a diversified portfolio over the medium and, and longer term. So I hope that gives you something to think about. Thank you, and make it a great day. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.